that God is a mighty fortress really will um, become quite significant as we open the word this morning. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Give you a little um, background of the main aim, if if you want to, you can see there in your bulletin, the title this morning is Rest in the Storm. Now let me tell you how me being up here this morning, I, even this week I have had the chance to see how God has sovereignly worked. Two, about two months ago, Pastor Brandon knew he'd be doing this wedding and he asked me about two months ago if I would be willing to speak this Sunday. And I, I so appreciate the opportunity. Um, and so even then the Lord began to work on me actually this very passage. Luke chapter 8 verse 22 through 25. Just some things in my life the Lord has been teaching me. Through this specific passage, it, it was just standing out to me over and over again. And so I began to prepare and pray toward and, and think about speaking this text to us. And little did I know that this Sunday would be the Sunday following devastation that has been all over our TV screen. So the topic today, I'll be honest, I, I feel a even greater weight a little bit to it because... Um, This is not something out there and away from us. It has been right before us this week. And the question that we have to ask as believers is this. What do we do when times like this come? Think about it. This is the storm that happened and hit Oklahoma City region. 24 dead. Nine of them children. 2.2 billion dollars an estimated damage. This is not just some theory out there that we talk on. This is real life. And the question has to be, what do we as believers who claim faith in Christ, what do we do? Where do we go? And I plead with you out of this text to go the only place we were ever meant to go. And that is run hard toward the one who's sovereign over it all. The arms of Christ. So look at this text. Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 25. And one day he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And, the wind, and a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water. And were in danger. And they went and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? That he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Let's pray. Father, I confess I bring nothing to this morning of any spiritual significance in myself. Lord, I admit I'm in desperate need of you this morning. Lord, I pray that during this time you would 
utterly get me out of the way. I pray your word would go forth. And Lord, those in this room, that Lord, they may be going through a great season of trial, a great storm. Lord, I pray the words would land as appropriate comfort to their needy souls. To those who may have come out of and in in honest be fighting bitterness and have a lack of faith of what to do with all these various struggles, Lord, I pray You would show Yourself worthy this morning. You would show that the only place we were ever meant to run and turn and go to is You in these times because You're the one who's in control of it and have good, glorious purposes behind it. Lord, help us. Help us see this morning. And be, Lord, I I cling to you and your promises like you told your disciples not to be anxious about what to say, but the Holy Spirit will give them the words to say. So, Lord, that's what I'm pleading for this morning. May the words be clearly through your word proclaimed and used by the power of the Holy Spirit to land on hearts as you see fit. Lord, only you can do this. And Lord, only you deserve the praise for it. And we thank you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. So you want to go ahead and look at this first line of the text. We're going to walk through it kind of slowly. Look at verse 22, and it says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. Now to help us out here to get some background and to help us understand what he means here when he says lake, he's talking here about the the Sea of Galilee. This is the region he's talking about. i got some slides to show us to kind of help us get a picture. There we see this is in Galilee. If you know your your map of Israel, you've got Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Here, upper part, Galilee. And you see all those little regions and towns around the Sea of Galilee. So there's just a map of it. I want to show you a a topographical topographical map, geography map, there you go, of how it looks, okay? Notice here that, notice the landscape. Mountains and high country all around that valley where the Sea of Galilee rests. Now this is going to become very important in a few moments because of the way the storms just come so quickly on this region. So when when you hear Luke not use a a throwaway phrase, he says a storm came down on the lake. He's literally meaning that a storm had built up on these mountains and then came barreling down on the lake. So that's what it looks like to this day. That's the topographical look of it. Now here's some modern day pictures of it. Just a few. This is the Sea of Galilee today. You can see it. This This is someone took this recently. You can see the mountains across it, cities built around it. Um, another one, if you want to see, beautiful. You can see all the, the, the regions. That's kind of the lowland off of the mountains coming down. So when you see this, I'll be honest. When I heard and thought about the Sea of Galilee, I didn't really think of something to this scope. Okay, Just so you know, the Sea of Galilee is some 12 miles long, 6 miles wide at its widest point, and is 200 feet deep at its deepest point. This is not Rocky Mount City Lake. Okay? We don't call it the Sea of Rocky Mount. Okay? This is, this is a large body of water. So when you're seeing this and thinking through this, think of this very large body of water. And also, um, the way we see it here, this is modern day, the water levels were actually higher in the time of Christ because this is the main water source for this region. So people around there who live there will tell you that the water level has gone down. So when you even see these kind of pictures, think of that on the shore, the water was even higher. So this is a very large body of water. It's significant 
to it. Now, to help you a little bit, in the scriptures it's often called different names. In the Old Testament it was called uh, Kinneret, K-I-N-N-E-R-E-T. The New Testament, it will be referred to as the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Gennesaret, the Sea of Chinnereth, and we often just call it the Sea of Galilee because it's the Galilee region. Now, the reason that they're called these different names is because around the lake, surrounding it, are these different towns. So if you lived in Tiberias, you say, that's my lake, the Sea of Tiberias. If you lived in uh, Chinnesareth, you said, no, it's ours, it's the Sea of Chinnareth. Okay, so, so it's just, that's the name. But we, modern day, we say, well, it's all of theirs. It's the Sea of Galilee. That's how we know it as. So then you see that, that Christ comes up to a point in his ministry in chapter 22, or excuse me, verse 22 of chapter 8 in the Gospel of Luke, and he tells his disciples, let's get in a boat and let's go to the other side. Now, at least at its shortest point, we know that he's asking them, I'm, I'm asking you, we're going to row six miles across. That's what's going on here. And notice what took place. He said, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed... He fell asleep. Now I want you to know something. In this passage, we're going to see the beautiful unity between the 100% humanity of Jesus Christ and the 100% deity of Jesus Christ. Theologians like to call it this very large word I could not even begin to spell. It's the hyperstatic union. It means that God is one being with two natures, human and divine, and they are completely in one person. And your head exploded. Yes, welcome. So, but, but here in this passage, we're going to see that Christ was exhausted. And then in a few moments, we'll also see, oh, but he's utterly God. So, so why was he so, so exhausted? Up to this point, remember after he'd been baptized and he went to the wilderness and he, for 40 days, no food, no water, and he was tempted by the enemy. And then he went out and he began ministry. He was healing. He was teaching day in, day out, casting demons out. Uh, healing those with affirmities. And remember, he would walk from region to region. There was no cars. There was, there was no bike. <laughs> there was nothing. It was walking. Some of these trips were day trips. And so it makes sense that after a long season up to this point of ministry, he tells his disciples, let's get in a boat and let's go to the other side. You also remember when he would want to be alone with his father, where would he go? The mountaintop. There are regions in these areas that the mountains are 600 feet high. Christ would walk these to get away so he could have deeper fellowship with his father. And here we see that he comes to this point and he says, let's go to the other side of the lake. Now I want to show you a picture of what the, the boats during that time looked like. This is based on most archaeological facts. If you have an ESV study Bible, you can find this picture because this is in your ESV study Bible. Um, you see there that um, it was normally... Uh, Based on archaeological facts and findings, this, this boat was what most of the fishing vessels looked like. It would normally have six people who would row uh, at, a, at a given time, but it could hold up to 13, obviously 12, 15 people. Okay? So that's what's taking place here. Christ and all his disciples go across, and they begin to go. Now, now catch this. Look at verse, again, 23. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. So the result, the result was he had fallen asleep. Now, think on this. Some of your passages, and actually in other passages like Matthew and Mark, will say that he got into the boat. Now, this is not like a large boat like we think of, oh, it's got different levels, and we think pirate ships, and he went in. Do you see on there that little spot where it looks like someone would stand and, and steer it, and then there's like a, a little hole there? That's what it meant when he got in. 
How exhausted do you have to be that you see that and you think, that's the Ritz-Carlton. I have got that awesome. And we know this, that he not only fell asleep during the storm, he continued to be asleep. So here we see the utter humanity of Christ. Philippians 2, 5-11 says that he came humbly and he set aside his continual use of his divine attributes that God became a man to reconcile men and women to God. And he did so humbly as our priest, our intercessor, and our advocate. If you take away, and there are even some who claim to be Christian universities that want to take away the proclamation of the agreement of the virgin birth. If you do so, you take away the humanity of Christ. And if you take away the humanity of Christ, you take away our hope. Because the reality is that our salvation and our sins, the sins of mankind, had to be paid by a man. But the, also the flip side of that, that there was no man ever born besides Christ who could bear the full wrath of God and triumph. That's why not a man came, and not just God came, but a God-man came. So you see here his utter humanity. So continue, look, look at the continued part of this. And it said, and as they sailed, a windstorm came. It came down. Remember the, the, the map I showed you of the mountains? The way, the way the storms would come up, it could be a beautiful day. Even this day, the, the sailors on the Sea of Galilee, the fishermen there, they know the times of day when it can be really windy, really rough. But during, obviously, the time of Christ, what would happen is you saw those mountain regions. Storms could, from any direction, sometimes come from the west and come from the east. But because of these mountain regions, they would get built up. And they kind of stall a little bit and get more strength and more strength. And then what would happen is, when, the, when they finally toppled over the mountain, they came hard onto the lake. It was a beautiful day. It was gore. There was nothing going on. And they set out for the lake. And all of a sudden, notice Luke's phrase, and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger you notice here that these men these men if you take a broad view of the look of the disciples if you've done my study through or just read John MacArthur's 12 ordinary men you know that we know that Peter was a fisherman Andrew was a fisherman James was a fisherman John was a fisherman there's discussion that maybe Philip maybe Nathaniel and maybe um Thomas was also a fisherman. So based on that, you could have at least over half of the disciples were fishermen. They grew up on this lake. They knew this lake like the back of their hand. They made their living here. And suddenly a storm comes up that they could not handle. It caught them and they were without hope in their own strength. You could say these men were rowing. Some of the passages in Matthew and Mark point to that they may have been trying to row at this all night. I want you to get this picture. If you can't imagine being out on this lake in the middle of the night, it's just utter and complete darkness. And at some point, you just get exhausted and bewildered. You're just rowing and you're disoriented. And they, they know we're not making any progress. This storm is so strong. We've been turned around so many times. And we don't know 
if we'll be able to survive and find our place back to shore. And so in the moment of desperation, the fishermen came to an end of themselves. And they awoke Jesus. Look at what they say. Master, Master, we're perishing. A storm had entered their world so suddenly that they had fought and fought and tried and tried. And Christ was still sleeping, still at perfect peace. And they went to him and they woke him up. And hear the language they say, we're dying. We don't know if the tone was, hey, just letting you know, we're, we've done all we can. We have no hope. Would you like to wake up now? But I also think there's some, Jesus, help. It was simply a cry for help. Jesus, help. They went to him. We're perishing. We're dying. And look at what he says. And he awoke and he rebuked the winds and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. The scripture does not give any indication here that this was a long process. Oftentimes, just because I like, yes, I'm a, I'm a comic nerd. I like Marvel. It's better than DC, in case you're wondering. But I like Marvel comics and those kind of elements. And it's for some reason, when I get a picture of God doing some miracles because of just entertainment, I get this picture of he had to muster up his godness. And he mustered up and he said, stop. It's not what took place. This did not seem like a very difficult task for Christ. He awoke, he sat up, he looked at the raging waves and seas, and he said, stop. And they ceased. And then he looked at his disciples. Where is your faith? Now the question comes, why did he ask that? Because he asked it, you can know he was knowing their heart based on their response. Think on what they've seen Christ do in ministry. He's seen him heal people. He's seen have control over nature and even life and death. And here, Christ stops the storm and notice their reaction. Verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. They marveled in fear. They were afraid and they marveled. Why? Because look at what they say. Who then is this that he, and do not skip over that word, commands. He commands even winds and water and they obey him. You see, we saw the humanity of Christ. He was exhausted. And here, three verses later, Storm comes, and they say, Christ, we're perishing. Christ stands up and says, stop. And the storm stops. And you know what we see here? The utter sovereignty and deity of Jesus Christ. He is in control of every storm that you will ever face. Now, why, why do the disciples... When he stops the storm, why does that cause them to pause? And, and even a little bit more, why, why did the storm stop? Genesis 1 tells us that all creation came into being by the spoken word. 
And then Colossians 1.16 says that by Him, being Christ, all things were created. Do you know why that storm stopped? Because when Christ proclaimed, stop, it was the very same voice that they heard when they were spoken into being. It's the same voice they heard that said, be. That storm said, there is God in it. Ceased. Now, why does this move them to fear? Because they're beginning to realize God is gradually unfolding to their hearts that he's not just a man and a earthly Messiah. He's the God-man who is God. And that moves them to marvel and be afraid. Why? I want you to look at a few passages that show that it can only be God who's in control of every storm we ever face. Look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verses 8 through 9. As being good Jews, these disciples knew most of these passages. And when they see Christ calm the storm, I would not be surprised if a passage like this entered their mind. Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea, and when its waves rise, you still them. There's only one being in all the universe who steals the storm and who's in control of it, it's God. Now, I want to move a little bit further just beyond not just that he's in control of these storms, he has purposes involved in every single storm, specifically good purposes for those who are in Christ. Because I want to turn you, look at Job. Job chapter 37. Job chapter 37. Job chapter 37, verses 11 and 13. Job 37, 11 through 13. Now, if, before we look at 37, just as a side note, if you really are struggling with this concept of God's sovereignty and how God views people doubting it, I would challenge you to go also read Job 38 through 42. He spends, Job obviously went through deep struggles and pain and God comes to him and he basically says, you need to dress yourself like a man. Man up, I'm about to tell you who I really am and who you really are. But the the chapter before that, listen to the language of Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verses 11 and 13. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter whose lightning? His lightning. There's not one lightning bolt that lands one millimeter apart from where God sovereignly wants it to land. It loads His lightning. Hear this language. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world. And listen to verse 13. Why? Why does he control these storms? Why does he bring these storms into our world that seem so quick? What's the 
purposes. They can overlap, but look at verse 13. Whether for correction or for his land, hear this one, or for love. For love? He whirls the storm around and around and he moves it exactly where he wants. And one of the purposes in it, specifically for his children, is for love. He causes it to happen. And as I read that, I honestly have to say, okay, okay, God, what good and what magnificent love do you permit these moments of horrific pain to enter the lives of your children. And I want to share with you a brief story, and I'm going to try to get through it. My son is nine months old. Um, if you want to see him at church, he'd be glad to. He might puke on you. He's nine months old. Since he was about two months old, he really struggled with uh, acid reflux. Um, some of you have had children know this. He even got to the point when he was two months old that the acid would build up so much it, would, it blocked his windpipe both in his throat and his nose. And I had to one night, he stopped breathing, flip him over, grab a bulb, and just start sucking out acidy stuff. It was great. They said, but with children like this, um, there's a lot of pain in the throat. And they're always, even more than most babies, they're just sticking everything they can down their throat to try to ease the pain. Okay? So, um, I'll tell you, this, this was a moment, I can vividly remember it. It was, it was about five months ago. My son was four months old. And I was having one of those days where the lake was calm. It was a good day. I was sitting in my office. I was on the phone with my old roommate. We were talking about the things of the Lord. We were talking about what's going on in our lives, praying for one another. And in an instant, one of these storms came out of nowhere and crashed on my world. I'm sitting in that room. And my wife calls. And this is what I hear on the other line. Shane, Garrett has stopped breathing. He's unresponsive. And I'm on the phone with 911. I need you home now. That's all I know. That's it. So my eight-minute commute from here to there became a four-minute commute. But I can tell you I vividly remember those four minutes. I had nothing to do. I was at an end of myself. I was coming and I said, God, I'm either entering a home where my son is alive or dead. What do I do in those four minutes? I'll tell you the only thing I could do. I ran hard to the one who's in control of not only the raging sea, but my son. And the Lord sovereignly in his goodness that day, he didn't tell some storm to stop. He spoke to my son's little lungs and he said, breathe. When I walked in, he was responsive. What had happened was he was sitting in his swing and he had taken his blanket. Uh, my wife was in the kitchen. I could talk about all the things to see where God's sovereign and how he worked it out. My daughter was in there with her and she said, Garrett was crying a little bit. So he said, would you please go check on him? And she went in there, and the blanket, he had had his blanket over his head. He had apparently taken his blanket and shoved it down his throat, and he could not get it off of him. And Kara moved his blanket, and by God's grace, knew something was not right. He was, she, he, she went and told my wife, Kim got there quickly. He was beet red, sweaty, and unresponsive. So she got him down. She began to bulb like we did. In the, she called the EMS, and by God's grace, 
He breathed. He breathed. Now, now here's the question that I often have asked myself. Father, do I have enough faith to say, if you in your sovereignty made the outcome completely different, and you decided not to spare my son, would I have enough faith to still proclaim you are good, you are God, and you are sovereign? Because he is. Now, why can a heart proclaim that in the deepest possible pain? The reality is, it's because as much as a struggle as that would be, the loss of a son, do you know why I could still proclaim and have hope if my father had not spared my son? And he did spare my son. You know what brings me more joy? That he sovereignly saw fit. He didn't spare his My biggest problem, eternal separation from a holy God as an utter sinner destined for deserved eternal wrath has been taken care of at great cost to the Son. That is why the heart of the one who trusts and believes in Him, no matter what storm enters your world, no matter what comes your way, The Lord has called us to run hard to Him. That day, my God saw fit to calm the storm. But if He doesn't, this is why I plead with you, run hard to Him. Because in His arms is the only place you want to be as He sees you through that storm. Why do I know that He works these purposes out? I want to include, look at Romans Romans chapter 8. Famous passage. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 8. Or excuse me, verse 28 and 29. Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 through 29. Hear this. We know this passage, but let it sink on you. And we know that for those who love God... Hear this phrase, all things work together for good. Remember what it said in Job, sometimes for correction, sometimes just for land, but sometimes for love. I want to ask, how can these storms work for good, God, and how, or, or love? How do I know they work for good? My question is, what's the good? Is it necessarily circumstantial change? And you can read all throughout the Bible that that's not the case more often than not. It's often not the case that the circumstances get better. So what's the good? The answer is in verse 29. He works all things together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The greatest good for the child of God is to be shaped more into the image of the Son of God. That is the greatest good good. The picture I've heard, and it it helps me out quite a bit, is as a potter has his hands on a clay wheel, and the, the, the wheel's spinning, and his hands on the clay, and he says he works all things for good. He uses all things to shape us more into the image of Christ. So sometimes he brings a blessing a good thing, a gift, and he uses it like a, a warm sponge on the hand of that clay. 
But sometimes, to shape me more into the image of Christ, I have this hard edge. And God the Father must take what is like sandpaper and press on me hard. But the hope is this. God never takes His hand off the clay. He never removes His hands from His children. So whatever comes into your world, good, bad, hard, difficult, glorious, joyous, He's working it all for His children to shape them more into their greatest good to look more like His precious Son. Now how do I know that that's good and then what about this love? What, how can these storms pursue me to a deeper love? Paul concludes this. Look at verse 31 to the end. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Hear it. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him gloriously give us all things? What's the all things? It's more deeper fellowship and more love with Him. He displays through the cross, I gave my son, I didn't spare him. So whatever you may face, look back to that and know that I'm still with you. And I will give you gloriously all things, namely more fellowship with myself. How do I know that? Look at the rest of the passage. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it not God who justifies? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Oh, that is a glorious news. Who shall, hear it, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or storm As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep being led to a slaughter. And hear this word, no. In all things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the ultimate purpose of whatever storm God sees fit to bring into your world is? Is to press you into this reality. Is to press you into this reality that when everything in my world falls apart, He's my fortress. When everything in this world seems like sinking sand, He is my rock. And when everything around me is raging, Sometimes literally raging of storms and sometimes consequences and circumstantial storms are raging in your world. Do what the disciples didn't do quickly and that's run quick to Christ. Because it's in His arms that the child of God is safest. And if He sees fit in His good purposes to see you through whatever storm He's seen fit to see you through, He will bring about His good purposes for those who are in Him. 
My plea for you is run to Him. There's a song written recently, you may have heard it on the radio. Chris Tomlin wrote it, it's called Sovereign. Listen to his words here. I think he echoes these realities. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm and with me in the storm. Sovereign in my greatest joy and he's also sovereign in my deepest cry. He's with me in the dark and he's with me at the dawn. In your everlasting arms, all the pieces of my life from beginning to end. Here it is. I can trust you. In your never failing love, you work everything for good. God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. So my question to you is this. Do you hear that? And do you believe it? For those of you who are in Christ, would your faith echo yes? But if you be honest here today, and you would be honest and say, I'm struggling hard with that. I ask you, do you hear the same question that Christ asked his disciples? Where is your faith? And my plea for you is run to him. That he may sustain you through it for his maximum glory. And here it is, we receive the maximum joy. So I don't know where you are this morning. You may just come, need to come down here and pray. Maybe There may be people in this room that don't even know what you're going through. But if you'd be honest, the storm is hitting you hard. And maybe you need to come and just pray to the one who's in control of it and say, God, above circumstances changing, help me grow deeper in love with you. May your will and your purposes be done. Others in here, you may know someone who's desperately going through a struggle. And I ask you, what is it that we're pointing them to? Do we point them to the fact that all the circumstances will get better? Or do we point them to the one who's in control of every circumstance? Who we can trust by faith. He's good. He's sovereign. And He is God. And I will worship and trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your word would have its purposes done. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are absolutely sovereign over all things. Every storm that has entered will enter. My world starts by your hand. So Lord, let me trust that nail-pierced hand and its goodness. Let me trust that you are sovereign and in control, and working everything out for your glory, and as your child, my ultimate good. So Lord, for those in this room that would be honest and say, Lord, their faith may be shaken, I pray that you would show yourself as glorious as you really and truly are, and that they can know they can run hard to you and find rest in their storm.
Lord, help us, no matter what comes in our world, to trust you and grow deeper in love with you. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your kindness toward us in Christ, who has accomplished and taken care of our biggest problem, eternal separation from a holy God, and may that be the root of our joy. And it's your great name we pray. Amen.